Loving God, open our hearts to the encouragement and love you offer us in your story of redemption. Shine on our darkened minds with luminous wisdom. By the Spirit's dwelling inside each of us, make us eager and able to receive the gift of your word and live it out in the here and now. Amen. Our reading today is from John. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you were here last Sunday, we kicked off our Advent season in the first five verses of John's Gospel. And we are picking up this morning right where we left off, kind of each week building towards the punchline that John has for us, which is this. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It's a verse that the biblical scholar Gail O'Day described as the decisive event of human history. Indeed, the history of creation, because the incarnation means that human beings can see hear and know God in ways never before possible. But the way that John builds toward and sets the context for this decisive event is worth uh, noticing. And that's why we're taking it slowly, spending all of our time in Advent on just these first 14 verses of John's prologue. And so to help us navigate the gospel, these first 11 verses are about the glory of heaven grounded in the stuff of earth. We spent last week on those first five verses, which begins with the memorable opening line, in the beginning. And as you know, that is a loaded phrase. It's one that the Hebrew people had grounded their lives in for generation upon generation. It's the opening story that continues from creation through God's blessing, uh, through the harsh oppression of Egypt, through the deliverance of the exodus. It's one that grounds them in the covenant, in the land of promise, in the prosperity of David's kingdom, and then the devastation of that kingdom, the exile, and then return to Israel. Those three words shaped every Jewish child's memory. In the beginning, God created the world, speaking it into existence. That was the start of everything. And in using that phrase, John is signaling to his fellow Jews, this is your story. But see, John has another trick up his sleeve as well, because the gospel was written in Greek, and the next three words are just as telling. In the beginning was the logos, or in the word as I, was the word, as our Bible translates it. That was opening up a portal to a whole different audience. Uh, the Greek philosophers held that there must be some sort of mind or or spiritual language, holding everything together, permeating all reality. Something that binds and, and makes sense and, and brings order, that, that, that crafts this whole thing called life and brings it together. And they call this divine reason the logos, or the word. And this matters because by the time that John has written his gospel, there are far more Greek-speaking Christians than there are Jewish 
Christians. And so in using this word logos, the Greek-speaking Christians would, would hear it and think, oh wait, this, this is my story. I'm going to risk an analogy to show you what John is doing here. Imagine that you are an 11th grader and you're transferred in on your first day at a brand new school. You step into the cafeteria, you survey the landscape, and you see all of this, this scene unfolding before you. You got the freshmen over here, you got the preps, you got the mathletes, you got the cool kids over there, the jocks, the cheerleaders, the aspiring rappers handing out their mixtapes. You got the emo kids who are really just Enneagram fours and don't have not yet taken emotionally healthy spirituality. <laughs> and of course, over there on the one table, you got the girls who on Wednesdays always wear pink. But you're new and you don't know anybody. So you're drowning. And instead of just standing there, you find an open table and you, you, with these outsiders and you grab onto the conversation like it is a life raft. And just when you're getting your sea legs, right, suddenly you hear this excited murmuring coming from the center of the cafeteria. And, and then you hear this, this, this chatter and it starts to spread from table to table. And before long, everyone's kind of crowding in, listening to this person telling a story. And then you hear the name of your old high school and the name of your old hometown. And suddenly you realize, wait, wait, this person's telling my story. Well, that is what John did to the entire Jewish and Greek-speaking world in just six words. And I am, I am very, very aware of the inherent danger of comparing John's gospel to the plot of Mean Girls. <laughs> but you gotta admit, the guy's pretty good. He's telling everyone's story. And it is the foundational story on which every other story owes its, its foundation and its being. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The organizing principle of the Greeks, the divine creator of the Hebrews, they were in on it from the start. And in fact, they are one and the same. The Word was God. And that would have been enough to blow anyone's mind. But the thing is, John's not just after building a, a philosophical construct here. No, the most shocking claim that he makes is that this divine word is not some abstract spiritual force. Instead, it is a uniquely intimate reality that became present in a person named Jesus of Nazareth. Now, of course, the, the Greeks, they had plenty of their own kind of creation stories. They, they, you know, now most of them had to do with power. Like there was some sort of battle up there in Mount Olympus between the gods and whoever won would have all the other gods lining up behind him. And that's a story that we see playing out again and again in the world. It's a story about power and domination. The one who wins is the one who is the creator, the one who gets to write the history. But John is saying, no, the biblical story, it's, it's different than that. John is pointing to a triune God who lived in a perfect community of love and who decided out of the overflow of that love to create a world and direct a world in love. And so John opens up his gospel not with angels breaking into an otherwise ordinary world. No, he's pulling back the curtain on all of reality altogether and saying that the most substantial foundation of light, the principle that holds all of the world together, is a person whose life is defined by love. 
And so these first five verses, they are a soaring declaration about all of life, about all of meaning, about every bit of hope that ever will or ever has found a solid footing. It's all right here. It's all in this story. This is an epic story about the glory of heaven. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. And then comes verse 6. So there was this guy named John. Talk about a shift in tone. But the thing is, John, it's not like he needed a better editor. Here's what I love about the Bible. The Spirit does not let us stay up in the heavens for too long. No, glory comes flooding down. It gets grounded into the dust and the dirt of the world in that insistently personal way that God will not give up on. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It really is that transcendent. There was a man sent from God named John. It really is that ordinary. Well, John the Baptist stands in the long line of witnesses who are all pointing the way to Jesus. He himself is not the light, John the gospel writer claims. He only came as a witness to the light. So there's just one light, that's Jesus' mission to the world. But there's also a witness who points the way from the darkness toward the light. That's your and my mission in the world. Theologian Stanley Harawas is fond of saying that the first job of the church is to make the world the world. He goes on to write, I'm in fact challenging the very idea that Christian social ethics is primarily an attempt to make the world more peaceable or just. Put starkly, the first social task of the church, social ethical task of the church, is to be the church, the servant community. And such a claim may well sound self-serving until we remember that what makes the church the church is its faithful manifestation of the peaceable kingdom in the world. As such, the church does not have a social ethic. The church is a social ethic. In other words, our primary job is to be a signpost directing others toward the kingdom that is breaking into the world. The question is not about what produces results or about what is effective. Rather, how does the quality of our work and our worship and our relationships with each other keep pointing to the reign of Jesus no matter what kind of stories the world is coming up with? The church needs to make the world the world. Which is another way of saying we were never meant to generate the light. Our job is just to bear witness to the light. To reflect it by living the kind of life that exposes the darkness for what it really is. That's what John is up to. I'm not the light. But I can tell you where to find him. A few verses later, the religious leaders catch wind of what John is up to. They, they hear about this wild-eyed revival preacher who's out there kind of drawing people into the Jordan, firing the crowd up, baptizing them, getting a real big crowd. And so they take a day off and they go down to, to, to the Jordan to see what it is that John is up to. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Now, see, John, he's the son of a Levitical priest, so he's steeped in this tradition. He's, he's been swimming in it since he was a kid. And these aren't just any old priests who are coming to hear him. These are the Pharisees and the Sadducees from Jerusalem. 
These are the, the wealthy elites who run the temple, who've got this kind of worldly aristocratic bent about them. They're the ones with the money. They're the ones with the power. And then there's the rabbinical school who know the Torah frontwards and backwards. And these are the ones who are coming out to, the, to nowhere to hear him preach. They're the best of the best, and they've come to hear you, John. I mean, if he was interested in career advancement, this is the kind of crowd you would want coming here to. This is a chance to dazzle them with your knowledge, with your rhetorical skills. This is his moment to shine. But he's not interested in that at all. That's not what he's here to do. I was doing some theological reflection with my spiritual director this week, and I mentioned how in the first few months that I was here, how much I absolutely hated preaching to a camera. I had just arrived. I didn't know you. You didn't know me. COVID hit. You know the story. I didn't have, because I didn't know you and because you didn't know me and I couldn't see you and you couldn't see me, I didn't have any sort of visual cues, any sort of feedback, any sort of little things I could pick up from looking at you and seeing, oh, am I putting you to sleep right now? Are you with me? Are my jokes landing? Are they weird? What's going on here? And I did not realize that in the absence of having any of that, how much my internal bellwether was all tied up in whether or not you approved of me or not. And for a few months, I did not have that, and it was absolutely brutal. And it was probably the best thing for me. Because there was nothing I could do except for allow God to grow my soul up. And after a couple of months, it allowed preaching to kind of once again become the spiritual practice of prayer and reflection and just asking God, hey, what are we going to talk about this week? And as I was talking about this with Alan, he dropped this line and I thought it was just so wise. He said, it's very hard to lead people from whom you desperately need something. It's hard to love people if you need them to approve of you because then you're not going to tell them what they might need to hear. And the thing is, that's not John's problem at all. Here he is. This is his moment. The people whose opinions matter, the people who could kind of, you know, direct where he's going to go, the inner circle that he should want to be in on, they've come to hear what he has to say. But he's got no interest in performing for them, saying the things that they'll like. In fact, what he says puts him on a collision course with the powers of the world. He only wants to bear witness. My time to shine? No. That light is not mine. It never was. But I've seen it. I can point you to it. I, look, I'm not the light. I'm just here in the dark telling you where to find the light. And I'm doing the kind of things that will help prepare you. So you want to step into these waters? Help get your eyes clear? You can see it when it comes? I mean, this is a guy who's free. He's not preoccupied with the approval, the interest of the gatekeepers. He can look at those people who might determine his future. Just give them the same message he's given to everybody else. Hey, step into the water. Get yourself right. He, he was there when he heard the father say to Jesus, this is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. Long before Jesus did anything in his ministry, and so people who are free from the need to prove themselves or to find their legitimacy in the eyes of others or in the power structures of the world, but are instead so attuned to the voice of Father, those people can pave the way for the kingdom. 
And the thing is, I know this, you and I, we face these pressures all the time. You, and the thing is, if you can have the same conversation in three different social settings and not wonder afterwards if you have been three different people, you're free. What if there was a community of people like that, free from the need of others' approval so that they could love their neighbors well? What a gift might they be to the world around them? What if there was a community so attuned to the Father's voice that they end up sounding like the God they worship? What a threat to the powers they would be in the best possible way. That's a life that knows how to turn on the light in the dark because that is a life that is not caught up in trying to be the light. John came as a witness, we are told. The thing about witnesses is that they are not the center of the story. They don't have the power to make things happen. They only say what they know, what they have seen, what they have experienced. But they can't do it for themselves. There's a scene in George Bernardo's novel, The Diary of a Country Priest. And this young priest is summoned uh, to care for a woman in his parish who is difficult. But now she's dying. And, you know, the initial joy of his call is kind of worn off, and now he's, he's been at it for a little while, and this creeping cynicism is kind of coming into his life, and he's a little bit ambivalent about making this call. But he goes to her, and he hears her confession, and he says kind of robotically, be at peace, be at peace. And then much to his surprise, she gets down on her knees in front of him, and he watches her entire countenance change. And to his surprise... He's overwhelmed as he watches her have more peace than he himself has. Oh, miracle, he says, thus to be able to give what we ourselves do not possess, the sweet miracle of our empty hands. Because you and I don't need to be the light, you got to know there's nothing that you have that God needs except maybe your empty hands into which he can place a little bit of light for others. To be a witness is to be free from the burden of having to be the light. But John's story shows us that it's also about waiting. See, because witnessing to the light doesn't mean that you'll be without your share of darkness. Sometimes it means passing on a peace that you yourself do not have. Later on in the gospel, John's refusal to change his tone in front of Herod lands him in some pretty hot water. He finds himself unjustly imprisoned, wondering what it all means, wondering if his life work of paving the way for the light that shines in the darkness is going to come to anything at all. Matthew chapter 11 records it like this. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? This is John's dark night of the soul. He was sure that Jesus is the one that he and all of Israel had been waiting for. And he, he, he's heard Jesus preach. He's, he's seen him do the things that Jesus does. He's seen him, you know, bring light out of darkness. He's seen him uh, bring healing to bodies that were racked by disease. He's seen the, the, the demonized, the tormented become back to their senses. He's seen 
renewal break in everywhere Jesus goes, but now he's sitting here and that renewal feels like it is a million miles away. So he sends his disciples to ask, are you the guy? Do we look for somebody else? And what's behind that question? Look, Jesus, I was in on all of this light in the beginning. I, I thought we were here to push back the darkness and it was looking really good for a while, but now I'm here and, and these four walls of a prison cell and it's looking pretty dark. I mean, come on, Jesus. If you're sitting on a royal flush, it's time to stop slow playing your hand and go all in. Otherwise, if you're not the one, you just tell us where to look. I don't know why it is, but every bit of renewal that happens in the world, that happens in our lives, comes after seasons of barrenness and a whole lot of waiting. It's because the glory of heaven is coming into the grit and grime of earth. And the reality of our experience looks like unforeseen pain, disappointment, longing, loss, shattered dream, unmet expectations. A whole lot of waiting. Are you the one? Is this it? We all know that question. We've offered a lot of prayers together in this space, around tables, in our homes. We prayed for strength to cope, for grace to bear the light of reconciliation in a really fractured and divided world. We've prayed for kids who are struggling to make sense of that world. We've prayed for God to bring healing to ailing bodies and for God to bring results to this round of resumes going out yet again. We've prayed for victims of injustice only to pray for more victims. We've prayed for nations to beat their swords into plowshares only to see them turn from cultivation to violence. We're praying for just a little bit of light to break in. We pray for all of that and then we wait. And in all that waiting, the questions that come are inevitable. If the light is driving out the darkness, why when I look up at the night sky does it look like the darkness has got a whole lot more territory? How can this be it? And friends, those are Advent questions. You don't get very far in the life of faith or life with God without asking those questions. Is this it? Maybe you are even asking some version of that question now. See, because bearing witness to the light brings you to this place of freedom. But then it brings you also into this place of waiting and that is where God does his deepest work in your life. Mother Teresa was well known for her ministry among the poorest of the poor in Calcutta. And shortly after she died, her journals revealed that this long, intense period lasting until just a little while before her death of absolutely profound spiritual isolation where she would pray and feel this sense of God's absence as dark and frightening as early as, uh, or, or just as dark and frightening as the early periods of joy and intimacy that she experienced with God. And I heard the story by a Jesuit priest, John Cavanaugh, who took a sabbatical for three months while he was dealing with his own period of isolation and loneliness and ministry. And so he, he went and served with her and he was wrestling and all this uncertainty. And upon meeting Teresa, she asked him, what can I do for you? And he said, I just want you to pray for me. And so she said, well, what do you want me to pray about? And so he came to ask her the thing that he had 
been, been traveling thousands of miles to get to. I want you to pray that I have clarity. And after a little while, she looked at him and said, no, I'm not going to pray for that. Clarity is the last thing you are holding on to and you need to let go of it. Obviously, this was not the answer he'd come to hear. Uh, look, uh, all due respect, Teresa, you seem to have a whole lot of clarity in your life. Why won't you pray for what you have? Oh, clarity. She laughed. I have never had clarity. What I have had is trust, and so I will pray that you will trust God. Talk about a mic drop moment. Everything significant that God has done in you and in the world has come after seasons of barrenness and waiting, not in the absence of our pain, but in God's presence right in the middle of it. Trust, that is our part in the waiting. And Jesus, he tells all these stories about a kingdom that comes like a seed. It starts out slow. And in between the planting and the reaping, there are, these, there are these, these long periods of absolute silence. And when most of the work is happening out of sight in the dark, in the broken soil of the earth, there are long stretches of time where it looks like absolutely nothing is happening. And it's this pattern that presents itself stubbornly over and over again in the pages of the Bible. Take Abram and Sarai, for instance. Childless and in their twilight years, when God promises them an heir to receive the blessing. And so they hold on to that promise, clinging to it for all it's worth. But then time marches on. And it keeps going. And they start to wonder, maybe we're supposed to do something about this. Maybe it's our job to make this happen. Maybe we got to bring a little bit of a light of our own into this dark world. So Sarai suggests that Abram sleep with her servant. He's a little too eager to do this. They wrestle with the promise. They try to get it from heaven to the ground. And the next thing you know, there's nothing but pain and strife. And then years later, when the promise finally does come, God tells them to take this only son, this, this one who is the, the answer to all these promises, the summation of everything that God has, has proven to be faithful and true about. And he asks them to take this son whom he loves and place him up on an altar as a sacrifice. Why, after all the years between the announcement and the promise and the fulfillment, why all of this wandering around in the dark? And maybe it's because the Abram who is crazy enough to leave his home and chase after God's blessing sight unseen wasn't yet the Abraham who could receive the blessing. And all of that waiting around in the dark just trained his eyes to look for the light. To trust that the peace of God's presence doesn't come in the absence of pain, but right there in the middle of it when all the work that was happening invisible like a seed in the ground was, was taking effect. And maybe God was preparing those future generations for a time when he would place his own son whom he loved up on an altar for the sake of the world. And maybe that's what it is for us, that the sheer beauty and the scope of the gift that God is giving takes some time of waiting and some training in pattern recognition so that we can understand the gift when it comes. 
Otherwise, John tells us that when the glory of heaven comes to earth, we won't even know what we're looking at. He was in the world, John writes in verse 11. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. Those Jesus came to did not recognize him. The glory of heaven, when it came into the grit of earth, it came in disguise. And the very thing that made Jesus hard to recognize is also the thing that made him trustworthy. Because he did not ask John to suffer through anything that he wasn't willing to suffer through on his own. When the glory of heaven drew near, it was despised. It was rejected by those he came to be with. He was falsely accused. He was imprisoned. The man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And so Jesus invites us to be his witnesses. But we do not get to avoid the waiting. We do not get to avoid the pain, the heartbreak, the loss. And Jesus faced those very things. British essayist Dorothy Sayers wrote, For whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of the human experience, the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it worthwhile. This is not a God who stands far off from the painful realities of the world, but one who plunges right in to create a new world, right in the shell of the old one, right in the broken soil of the old one. A God who is glorious enough to create the heavens and the earth and be the organizing principle that holds everything together is not one that we can perfectly understand for sure but a God who is personal enough to enter into our own suffering, to be present with the waiting, to hold on to your pain, your heartbreak, your loss, that's a God we can perfectly trust. And the question is, can you recognize him in the waiting? Friends, the miracle of Christmas is that God has experienced every human emotion, but he's not just stumbling around in the dark with us. In Jesus, he has come to bring the light and to one day banish the darkness forever. And so to trust in Jesus is to be as the church always is in Advent, witnessing to the light even as we wait for it to come in full. And it's never been easy to recognize after all, the people who were in the inn next door, frantically getting everything ready for the census, they probably didn't see anything special, no heavenly light coming out of this child in the stable. But the ones who learned to wait, they saw the glory of heaven and the light come flooding down. So may it be with us. Amen. Amen.